Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, October 18th by Pastor Rob Schaff. It is the fourth message in our Fall 2020 sermon series entitled, God of Wonder. Check out SardisFellowship.com for more information about our church. Around the time I was in grade nine, I was obsessed with the military. Movies like Top Gun and Iron Eagle made me want to be a fighter pilot. After all, fighter jets are the coolest machines on earth. They're fast, they're deadly, they're loud, they're exciting, they're awesome. I lived in Cairnport, Saskatchewan, which is about 15 minute drive away from the airbase where uh, the snowbirds are stationed. And they would practice all around us all the time in the sky and it really fed my imagination. But one time I was on a tour of CFB 15 wing Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and I found out that you can't be a pilot in the military if you don't have perfect, uncorrected vision. And I have glasses. So my dreams were dashed, and I knew that I would never be a fighter pilot. But something about the military still really appealed to me. It was captured in my imagination. Maybe it was the, the structure, the chain of command, or the opportunity for advancement, or seeing authority exercised, or seeing a team accomplish something great. But being a part of something bigger than myself was really what I wanted. And so I joined the Army Cadets. If you've never been to Army Cadets, it's basically like one part youth group and one part Army. We practice marching drills and we learn all of the commands. And we learn about the 100 plus year history of the organization. We participate in the long-standing tradition and we learn all of the hand signals. And we learn how to tie a knot and we learn how to put on a uniform. You know, we had classes where we would learn about military deployment strategies. We learn how to clean a rifle, and the whole point of the Royal Canadian Army Cadets is to develop in youth the attributes of good citizenship and leadership to promote physical fitness and to stimulate the interest of youth in the activities of the Canadian Armed Forces. And it definitely, on paper, was exactly what I dreamed about. You know, I loved it. Order, authority, structure, something bigger than myself. But just like my fighter jet dreams were dashed by my reliance on glasses, my Army Cadet experience would find my dreams crashing and clashing into reality. And here's why. Me and my friend that I joined Army Cadets with were really the only two people in the whole group that took it seriously. One time we showed up at Cadets and uh, there was a group of 20 or so kids that were really misbehaving quite badly. And our instructor came over and told us to fall in and stand at attention. And me and my friend, you know, filed into a rank and we stood at attention and uh, the other 20 just kept on misbehaving and our instructor barked, attention! And our one kid looked at him and straight up laughed. And he said something along the lines of, what are you going to do? You can't make us do anything. We'll just leave and we'll go to the mall and do something else. And all the other kids laughed and totally ignored our instructor. And so our instructor said, you know, cadets isn't going to start until everybody runs a lap around the gym, which was a big armory. And so my friend and I, we started running, but everybody else was just goofing off and uh, making fun of the instructor, and they really had no respect. Now, as a kid, I remember being so disappointed because I realized that our instructors only had authority over us if we gave it to them, if we let them have authority, and if we didn't, they didn't. Now, I dreamed about being a part of something bigger than myself, but it turned out that cadets would only ever be as big as we decided to let it be. And for me, that was really disappointing. Now, looking back, I didn't give my army cadet instructors enough credit. You know, they were all volunteers and some were cadets who had aged out of the program but still wanted to be involved and some were retired army reservists, but they were all people spending their weeknights with a bunch of punk teenage kids giving back to the community through a program that meant something to them. And I think that that's pretty respectable. Um, 
but I, I'll never shake off the fact that as a kid, I became very disillusioned. Those lazy kids showed me how naive I was. It was the first time that I really understood that authority in life isn't like gravity. Like you, you can't ignore gravity. It's always there, but you can ignore authority. It can be questioned. It can be doubted. It can be undermined. It can be something that is challenged and you have to choose to play along. And often in life, uh, there are good reasons to want to play along with authority and authority structures. Like for example, maybe you respect your boss's authority because you want to get paid. Maybe you respect the laws of our land because you value a functional society that is safe. Maybe you respect the rules of the road because you want to arrive alive. <laughs> arrive alive, it's hard to say. Maybe you respect the authorities in life because it generally means that life will go well for you, especially if the authorities in your life happen to have your best interests in mind. Some people see faith and religion the same way. They think that it's just something that we play along with. They think that the only inherent authority that God has in our lives is whatever authority we choose to give him. And some might even say that there are good reasons to play along anyway. Now, Pastor Tim gave me a good example of how this line of reasoning works. If you believe that porcupines can shoot their quills up to 30 feet away from themselves, when you see a porcupine crossing your path, you're likely to give that porcupine a lot of space so that you won't get hit by any quills. And the result of you giving all of that space because of what you believe is that you're pretty unlikely to get a, a face full of quills, right? The end result is good. Even though the initial belief about porcupines being able to shoot their quills for 30 feet isn't actually true at all. The end, the end result is desirable, and so people would say, well, <clears throat> the end justifies the belief, even though it's false. This line of reasoning applied to belief in God goes something like this. <clears throat> if you believe in a God that wants you to live a moral life, and he has the authority to punish you eternally if you don't, you're going to live a moral life, and the end result is good. A decent moral life with minimal limitations that was lived well all the way up until death. So even though the initial belief about God isn't true, the end result is desirable, and so it justifies the belief. Or, more simply, if your belief in God benefits you, it's probably worth it, even if there is no God. Ugh. Others would say, that's a horrible logic. If there is no God, you shouldn't fool yourself. They think that if God is only real because we choose to play along, it would be better if everyone just owned up to the fact that the only authority that exists is the authority that we have over our own lives. And we should stop using God as an excuse to not take responsibility for our actions. Now, I don't really believe either position. I don't believe that God is just a useful figment of my imagination. <clears throat> I don't believe that God's authority is something that depends on me giving it to him. Now, though, if God is only a useful figment of my imagination, and if God's authority in my life only exists because I'm playing along and giving it to him, then absolutely I would reject God right alongside any atheist. But that isn't what I believe God is. That's not how I believe God works. I believe that God exists whether I believe in him or not. I believe that God can be known not because I'm clever, but because he has chosen to make himself known. I believe that God can be known generally through his creation. I believe that the universe we live in is intricately designed and it screams of a designer. I believe that God is the true objective standard of good that exists outside of our own invention. And that's why all humans everywhere inherently crave justice and morality, <clears throat> at least in regards to how others treat us. That comes from somewhere. 
I believe that God doesn't only want to be known generally, but specifically. I believe that he chose to make himself known through his word, the person of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel. And that's Colossians 1:15 to verse 21. I believe that God has authority that exists outside of what we could ever lend him. I believe that because that is what God has chosen to reveal to us in the person of Jesus. Now, this is the fourth message in our current sermon series, God of Wonder. We're spending some time contemplating the mystery of God, wondering at his greatness. Now, all theology is doxology. All study of God leads us to worship him. And we're also taking time to think through some of the questions that we wonder about God. Now, as I was reading through the Bible and praying about what God might want me to preach on as a part of this sermon series, I came across this story in Luke that caught me off guard. It goes like this. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, the reason this story hit me so hard is because Jesus, the Son of God, is marveling at a centurion. God is looking in wonder at a soldier. The miracle in this story isn't the healing, but it's the faith of the centurion that caused Jesus to wonder. It got me thinking, if the Son of God stumbled across something that made his jaw drop, we should probably pause and take notice. Just what is it about the centurion that he, what is it that he got so right? Well, first off, the centurion is humble. In the eyes of Rome, the centurion is absolutely worthy of an audience with Jesus for the simple fact that he's Roman. 
He's on the right side of the war. He's on the side of the conquerors. He lives among a conquered people. He's on the right side of occupation, the side of power and authority. And Jesus isn't. Jesus is just some wandering Jewish teacher miracle guy. More than that, centurions earned their positions. Like Polybius, the historian, described uh, centurions' qualifications. Centurions must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and are reliable, and they ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. The centurion must have had the respect of his men, or else he never actually would be in a position to hold that post. And he was a centurion. He was made of the right stuff. He was a true Roman. And he would be right and justified to think that he deserves an audience with Jesus. And add to the fact that in the eyes of the Jewish elders, the centurion, who, who uh, the centurion sent to get Jesus, uh, they think that he's worthy. They think that, you know, he loves the nation. He built our synagogues. And therefore, Jesus, he deserves to have you do what he asks. He has done right by us. And so you should do right by him. Uh, but the centurion doesn't see himself as being worthy. In fact, he sends messengers to Jesus and says, don't trouble yourself to come under my roof. Now, surely this centurion knew that Jews and Gentiles mixed about as well as oil and water. He knew that it would be culturally inappropriate for a Jewish rabbi under their standards to enter the house of a Gentile under normal circumstances and certainly not into the house of a Roman centurion, the house of their occupying enemy. So at the very least, the centurion is humbling himself and his Roman ego to popular Jewish sensibilities. But more than that, the centurion doesn't even see himself as worthy of, of having an audience with Jesus, as meeting him person to person, of taking up Jesus' time. It's why he sends the elders. It's why he sends his friends as messengers. It's why he says, I didn't presume to come to you. And not only that, the centurion is petitioning Jesus not on behalf of himself, but, only on, but, but on behalf of his lowly servant. This is a big deal centurion go to, going out of his way for a nobody servant. And that tells you something about how this centurion views himself, right? This centurion is humble. And this is where the story starts to get really interesting. The centurion says, Say the word, let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. A centurion is given authority to command his troops, anywhere between 80 and 100 of them. And a centurion exercises his authority on behalf of the higher-ups in the Roman army. So, the, you know, orders would come into town by messenger directly from his commander, and the centurion would read them, and the commander would expect the centurion to get those orders done. So he'd read the orders, and then he'd bark the orders to his troops, and his troops would get to work, and the work would get accomplished. The centurion sees that Jesus and him have something in common. Authority. Jesus has been given true authority from God, and Jesus exercises that authority to accomplish God's will. And the centurion knows that when Jesus gives the order, sickness and death, they obey. Both the centurion and Jesus were under authority, and because they were under authority, they had the right to exercise authority. All they had to do was say the word and things happen. So the centurion thinks, if exercising my authority can produce results in life, what results could Jesus produce when he exercises his authority? The centurion recognizes his own limitations and recognizes that Jesus' authority doesn't have those limitations, and the centurion confidently asks Jesus to heal his servant. 
And Jesus marvels at the centurion. He says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There are many times that people marvel at Jesus for all of the amazing things that he does. But there are only two times in the Bible where Jesus marvels at people. And once is in Mark 6, 6 in Nazareth, where Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the Jews, where they get Jesus very wrong. And the second time is here in Capernaum with the centurion, where, where the centurion is getting something very, very right. The faith Jesus was searching for in all of Israel, he found in this Gentile Roman centurion. The centurion's faith isn't an abstract belief about God or an encyclopedic understanding of who God is and how God works. It's the simple and clear belief that when Jesus commands that something be done, it will be done. Why does the faith of this centurion fill Jesus with wonder? Stated simply, because the centurion set aside his own authority and he humbled himself and he placed his confidence in the authority of Jesus that was given to him by God. It seems so simple, but how many of us live with this kind of faith? How many of us live our lives like Jesus really has that sort of authority that isn't dependent on our own merits, that isn't because we've done good things for his people? How many of us have authority, uh, believe in Jesus' authority that, that when he says something, it'll get done? Jesus spent so much time ministering to people who constantly questioned who he was, who, who sent him, you know, who constantly doubted the authority that he exercised. You know, in Matthew eleven thirty four and in twelve twenty four, Jesus is accused of exercising spiritual authority on behalf of the prince of demons. They think he's demon-possessed. They think that that's why he has this power. And religious people see the amazing things that Jesus is doing, but they pick it apart. And they nitpick miracles until there's nothing left but Jesus breaking rules. You know, Jesus healed the guy. Oh, that's awesome. But it was on the Sabbath. Oh, that's not good. He's evil for sure. You know, He's deceiving the people. He's undermining our authority. Let's get rid of this guy. In all the Gospels, there's this story where Jesus clears the temple. Jesus is writing the injustice of the crooks who are ripping people off in the name of God. And the first thing that happens after Jesus clears the temple is people ask him, what sign can you show to us to prove that you have the authority to do this? And by what authority are you doing these things? Tell us, who gave you such authority? Ah. Are we any better today? Are we like Jesus' half-hearted followers in John 8 who love seeing Jesus' authority in action when it means miracles, but don't love Jesus' authority in action when it means he has authority in the day-to-day -day of our lives? Or are we like the Pharisees, comfortable to maintain and manipulate a system of religious understanding that keeps God nice and tidy and manageable and under our own control? Or... Do we recognize the limits of our own authority and our own imagination and set it aside, humbling ourselves and placing our confidence in the authority of Jesus? Do we live like God exists and has authority outside of ourselves or are we functionally treating God like he's just a useful figment of our own imaginations? Are we treating God like he's an army cadet, drill instructor, only as good as the punk teens that listen to him? Or are we treating God like the centurion, humbling ourselves and being confident that his authority gets things done? And it's real and it exists and it's not a figment of our imagination. N.T. Wright tells this story that I think is helpful in understanding God's authority. There's a soldier walking slowly in the jungle. His task is to protect villagers from terrorists, and every step means danger. And suddenly, a command reaches him on his radio. It's a senior officer who has seen where the enemy is hiding, and he must obey instantly, not only for the sake 
of his own life, but in order to get the job done protecting the villagers. It isn't what he's expecting to do, but he's been trained to do it. What he's told without hesitation, it's that kind of clear authority and automatic obedience that is vital in certain dangerous jobs. And most of us don't live in very tight or clear authority structures. There are always people that we respect in our workplaces. There are always people whose decisions we accept and go along with, with whose instructions we carry out. But we can then mistake We can make the mistake of thinking that God's authority is more like the less direct models of authority we have known in other aspects of our own lives. If we see God's authority at work in Jesus Christ as any less than absolute, like that of a military officer to his commander in the jungle, we are, according to this passage, not only mistaken, but also lacking in faith. A bunch of kids playing soldier, ignoring cadet instructors in an armory, is different from a soldier in the jungle listening to his commanding officer protecting villagers from terrorists. And a faith that plays God, picking and choosing when his authority might come in handy for us, is different than an authentic faith in the authority of Jesus, the Son of God who has saved us from our sins, and has the authority to make miracles happen, but also has the authority to correct the wrongs in our life. So is Jesus the Lord of the world or isn't he? How easily we accept God's yes and how hard we struggle against God's no. We have all had unanswered prayer. We've all struggled with doubts. We've all wondered, why isn't God doing what I want him to? Or why isn't he answering my prayers? Or if everything is under God's authority, why isn't he doing something about the injustice in the world that I would like to see him right? But to paraphrase Christian pastor and author uh, Timothy Keller, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't done the things you want him to do, then you have at that same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for not doing what you want him to do that you could never possibly know. Humility and confidence in God's authority isn't a magical formula to get God to do our bidding, but it's the sort of faith that Jesus himself marveled at. And when the Son of God marvels at faith of the centurion, we should pause and take notice. You can't fake humility. You can't fake confidence. You know, so often I think that we live our lives like the centurion, kind of with excellence, being the best people that we can be, you know, doing the right stuff, helping the little guy. And we think that that means that God owes us something. But what Jesus marveled at in the centurion is that the centurion didn't come to think that Jesus owed him anything. He just simply trusted in the authority that Jesus had trusted that God sent him. And Jesus didn't find that in Israel. He found that in a centurion. And that's just, that's just mind-blowing. And so um, it's my sincere prayer that we would all oh, trust Jesus. Now it's Thanksgiving. So I wanted to end this sermon with a prayer of Thanksgiving. And so would you pray with me? God, I say that word and all at once can't help but be aware. The chemicals swirling within produced that sound of air. From my lips and from my mind, imaginations soar. But could it be that I'm the maker of the one that I adore? Magician or materialist, which one ought I to be? Should I believe in only things my senses can perceive? Or through my mind, can I decide what is and what is not? Distort, create, manipulate this world with chance and thoughts? Creature or creator, which title do I bear? Who caused who to be and to appear out of thin air? 
But here I see the starry host, and now I must confess, I can't move a single mote, the heavens are at rest. My mind's eye holds a flower, and deep inside I feel it's only but a phantom, a shadow of the real. It still sways sweetly in the breeze, regardless of this man. So how could I presume to hold the infinite in hand? Herein silent glory, heavy with angelic dread, I speak your name, and know tis you who's speaking mine instead. I have not created you, no, in fact it's quite reversed. I have no authority, this living, breathing dirt. You are God, regardless of the sounds I make of you. You created, you sustain, your thoughts of me are true. And now all my words and wind can only bring you praise, for only the Spirit's words could cause the dead to raise. So as I speak and dream about you here in silent awe, synapses, impulses, neurotransmitters and all, I did not dream you, you dreamed me, and I awoke when I heard your transcendent voice created me by this ancient, simple word, human. In Matthew 28, 18-20, it's the Great Commission. The marching orders that Jesus gives all of his followers for all time. We read it a lot around here and it goes like this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. What are you going to do about it? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.